Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. This is Live Mike, Live Mike with Lee Lonsberry. Welcome back to Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry. Joe Biden in depth coverage on KSL News Radio. I stepped on again. We're going to get used to that. Uh, thank you. Welcome back to Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry. And it's 12.51 here in the KSL newsroom. In just a moment, we'll be uh, connecting with someone I'm very much looking forward to speaking with. If you were listening earlier in the day, just after 11.30 to Boyd Matheson's program, Inside Sources, you heard the first installment of this conversation. Stephen Studdert is uh, a Utah man who has advised six presidents of the United States, uh, specifically as director of the 1989 inauguration of George H.W. Bush. He would also go on to advise both Reagan inaugurations and others. Uh, well, that timeline doesn't make sense. He first advised and then served as director of the uh, George H.W. Bush inauguration of 1989. And as I listened to uh, Boyd speak with Mr. Studdard this morning, uh, I, I know there are you know limitations on time here in the radio world, and I knew that there was uh, more that we needed to discuss. So in, in just a moment, when I get the thumbs up from uh, producer Jessica, we'll be connected with uh, the gentleman. And uh, and he joins us now. Uh, Mr. Studdard, sir, how are you? Welcome back to KSL News Radio. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, I want to I want to play something for you and and talk to you about how it came to be. As I was listening to you uh, discuss the events of the leading up to the 1989 inauguration of George H. W. Bush, I heard you and Boyd talk much about themes and how themes are important and once identified uh, must become uh, more than just words shared by the newly inaugurated president, but rather themes that are present in all the festivities. So let me uh, just here share uh, with listeners and, and refresh you, I guess, uh, some of the words shared by George H. W. Bush during his inauguration address uh, on January 20th, 1989. Heavenly Father, we bow our heads and thank you for your love. Accept our thanks for the peace that yields this day and the shared faith that makes its continuance likely. Make us strong to do your work, willing to heed and hear your will, and write on our hearts these words. Use power to help people. For we are given power not to advance our own purposes, nor to make a great show in the world, nor a name. There is but one just use of power, and it is to serve people. Help us remember, Lord. Amen. Mr. Sutter, what can you tell us uh, about the inclusion of a prayer during the inaugural address of George H.W. Bush? I can remember meeting with him, and he recognized and quoted clear back to the days of the founders about the hand of providence over this great land, the United States of America. And it was something he personally wanted to do. He wanted to call and invoke the blessings of heaven on this country. There were multiple, you know, when, when the president speaks, he has multiple audiences. One audience, of course, is 
today, 320 million Americans who are listening. But it's also a message to his administration. These are the things I want us to focus on. It's also a message to foreign governments and foreign leaders. So he uh, he very keenly felt about the power of prayer. In fact, the very first act of his presidency was to sign a declaration declaring that day a national day of prayer and thanksgiving. Outstanding. Uh, his his inaugural address also included themes of community involvement, a, a balanced budget, bipartisanship. Uh, I, I, I guess it's it's true that those themes ought to be present in not only his speech, but also in the inauguration itself, of which you uh, in 1989 were the director. How do you how do you communicate uh, through the events of that day and the items under your purview and responsibility, the themes the president would like to uh, highlight on day one? You know, it's it's complicated in that. How do you showcase themes or messages at 15 inaugural balls? Well, one of the ways you can do that um, is by inclusion, by ticket pricing that all Americans can afford, and, of course, by selection of music. Same thing can be said about the gala. The gala, which is not happening this year due to a host of pandemic reasons, uh, a gala, the selection of the entertainers and performers. For example, George Bush had the Mormon Tabernacle Choir perform and had them sing patriotic music. Um, so those subtle indicators uh, not only inform policy, but they influence policy that will follow the inaugural. The, another place where it's emphasized is in the inaugural parade, the messaging that is on the various entries, especially the floats. Mm. Uh, you, you mentioned the Mormon Tabernacle Choir performing at the inauguration of George H.W. Bush. Do, do, do you offhand know how many inaugurations the choir has participated in? I, I, I've been, up, I've witnessed one, and I'm uh, aware of uh, of many others. Uh, but can you tell me? Do you know how many? I have, I have no idea. I know that Ronald Reagan, after they performed at his inaugural, referred to them as America's Choir. Yeah. I one little trivial thing I observed. I was uh, in attendance at. Uh, President Trump's inauguration uh, just uh, four years and a day ago, and I, I thought that I had recognized the coat that the choir was wearing, and uh, and so I kind of scrolled through, looking through Google Images, and ultimately tracked them down. I did recognize them, and it was the the same coat that had been worn at the at the Olympic ceremonies when the choir performed. Uh, a neat little piece of trivia there. Uh, the, the selection of the music. What, what was it the choir sang in '89? I don't remember. I do remember that uh, for Ronald Reagan in 1981, when they when they were in the parade, when they got to the presidential reviewing stand, they sang the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Amazing. And brand new President Ronald Reagan stood there and stood at attention with tears running down his cheeks. He was so moved by it. As you now look at, uh, you know, we are on the eve of the next inauguration. As you think back on, on your career, are there are there instances that uh, not only today but uh, but often uh, just spring to mind and uh, inform your behavior and the the lessons that you teach to others, things that you learned along the way, uh, advising these uh, inaugurations over the years. You know, I th- I think maybe one of the things that's really struck me is how, and it's not happening in this inaugural, it's the fourth time in American history that it's happening. Last time it happened was 152 years ago when Andrew Johnson did not attend Ulysses S. Grant's uh, 
inaugural after Grant refused to let Johnson ride in his carriage. Um, one of the things that really strikes me, Lee, is how the outgoing president, often defeated by the incoming president, sets aside the history of that election, sets aside partisanship, and they come together, and they ride together, they stand together in front of the American public, and both sides of the House and Senate, you see the leadership do the same thing. It is, it's a special moment in American history that happens in almost every presidential inaugural. Uh, and, and it's an important message to the world to see that peaceful transfer of power occur. Mm-hmm. Do, do you think that the absence of President Trump in this uh, in tomorrow's inauguration will uh, be a sting that lingers, that is felt, that sets any kind of tone that lingers with the American people, or will it be quickly forgotten? Oh, I think it's somewhere in between. I think it'll be remembered by those who want to remember it. It'll be recorded by historians as as, as the fourth time it's happened in American history. I don't know that it will affect public behavior in any meaningful way. I, I, I hope that the public listens to the new president as he talks about unity because the country does face some severe crises that require national unity. Amen. Uh, Stephen Stutter, thank you so much for your time for coming back uh, on to KSL News Radio. Did a little bit of fact checking. The, uh, the choir has been a part of three inaugurals and four swearing ins. Uh, that's what the Mormon Tabernacle Choir has been a part of. Uh, so listen, thank you for your time. Thank you for your contribution to this nation and for the fascinating stories and information you've shared with us here on the air. Happy to be here. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.